the Second World War, a podcast by Stephen Bedard. My plan for this podcast was to go through the Second World War in roughly chronological order. Because there are several battles in different locations, keeping strictly chronological is almost impossible. But in general, I think I have done a reasonable job. But there's one battle that I have struggled to figure out how to include. This is the Battle of the Atlantic. Strictly speaking, the Battle of the Atlantic lasted from 1939 to 1945. How do I fit that into my chronology? So I've decided to tackle the Battle of the Atlantic in chunks. We're almost at the German invasion of the Soviet Union, which really starts a new chapter in the war. So this is as good a time as any to get caught up on what has been happening in the Atlantic. There are a number of people who potentially coined the phrase the Battle of the Atlantic, including Winston Churchill. But who came up with it is not important. What is important is that it was the longest continuous campaign of the entire war, one fought by navies and air forces, which claimed thousands of lives. When we think of the Battle of the Atlantic, we often think of the German U-boats sinking Allied ships as they tried to send supplies to Britain and the Soviet Union. While there's more to it than that, that's a reasonable description. What we need to realize is that this is not the first time that something like this happened. There was a period of the First World War in which Germany engaged in unrestricted submarine warfare. Germany had actually been working on building submarines since about 1850. The technology really began to come together by the beginning of the First World War. By the beginning of the war, Germany had 48 submarines of various classes. In 1914, a U-boat sunk the HMS Pathfinder, which became the first ship sunk by a self-propelled torpedo. U-boat action against cross-Atlantic shipping played a role in the Americans joining the war. By the end of the war, 373 U-boats had been built. Not surprisingly, the Treaty of Versailles forbade Germany from building submarines. Not that that was going to stop the Germans. Once the decision to rearm was made, they became quite creative in how they hid both research and production. Eventually, it was discovered that Germany had submarines, but the only consequence was an agreement that there would be parity between Britain and Germany. That agreement wasn't honored either, and by the beginning of the Second World War, Germany had the largest submarine fleet in the world. Churchill would later say, quote, The only thing that really frightened me during the war was the U-boat peril. While that is very much Churchillian hyperbole, it does describe the danger that this technology posed to the Allied cause. Traditionally, naval warfare was about one navy fighting another navy. However, the German Navy was outnumbered by the combined British and French navies at the beginning of the war. Germany, therefore, turned to attacking Allied shipping. In fact, within hours of the start of the war, the U-30 sank the ocean liner SS Athena, despite being ordered not to do so. With the beginning of hostilities, Britain and France imposed a blockade on Germany. This, however, was much less successful than the German blockade of Britain, as Germany was surrounded by other countries either conquered by or friendly to its cause. 
On the 14th of September 1939, U-39 attempted to sink the British aircraft carrier HMS Ark Royal and nearly succeeded. Due to a malfunction, the torpedoes exploded before reaching its target. The U-39 was hunted down and disabled by depth charges. The crew was able to resurface and trade death for capture, but the U-39 became the first U-boat to sink in the Second World War. The U-39 was not the only submarine to experience issues with its torpedoes. Report after report came in about torpedoes exploding too soon or too late. The manufacturer claimed that it was negligence of the crews, but finally in 1941 the issue with the magnetic influence pistol was fixed and the U-boats became even more of a threat. While Britain tried to blockade Germany, Germany was also aware that Britain as an island needed vast amounts of resources brought to them by ship. If these ships could be prevented from reaching Britain, or even better, if they were sunk, Britain could be brought to its knees. One of the innovations to help bring this about was the use of wolf packs. Traditionally, one submarine would attack a convoy, do some damage, and try to escape. But if a pack of U-boats attacked the convoy all at once, the escorts would be limited in which U-boats they could go after, leaving the rest free to destroy the convoy. These pack attacks began in September and October of 1940. As the war progressed, Britain became less able to protect the convoys. First, they lost the French Navy with its surrender. The occupation of the Low Countries and of Denmark and Norway also gave Germany more places to attack from. Plus, the looming threat of a German invasion of Britain required some ships that could protect convoys to remain near Britain in order to help repel a potential invasion. If Britain's position got weaker, Germany's became stronger. Having achieved those European conquests that had been Hitler's immediate plan, the Navy was able to return to plundering the shipping lanes. One way to try and improve Britain's situation was the Destroyers for Bases Agreement with the United States in 1940. This was the trade of three British bases in Newfoundland, Bermuda, and the West Indies for 50 obsolete American destroyers. These would be sailed to Britain to be re-outfitted by British and Canadian crews. While it would take time to get battle ready, this was a way for Britain to get the ships it needed, and it was also a way for the United States to help without directly entering the war. The occupation of France was especially beneficial to Germany as it provided bases for the U-boats to have great access to Atlantic shipping. From these strategic bases, they would seek out convoys and sink tons of shipping. They would find convoys by aerial surveillance, breaking British codes, and by the U-boats themselves being ever watchful. The first phase of the Battle of the Atlantic was called by the Germans the happy time. It lasted from July to October 1940. A happy time it may have been for the Germans, but not for the Allies. 282 Allied ships were sunk on the approaches to Ireland, representing 1,489,795 tons of shipping. This was a devastating blow to Britain. By the way, we've been talking a lot about U-boats, but they were not the only weapon used by the Germans. Surface ships and aircraft 
were also regularly used against Allied shipping, even if the U-boats were the most effective. And it was not just the Germans on the Axis side. Beginning in August 1940, Italian submarines began hunting Allied convoys. They had very little success at the beginning, and the German high command had little confidence in the Italian contribution to the Battle of the Atlantic. However, their subs and crews would become more effective as the war went on. As 1940 neared its conclusion, the German Navy began to get more aggressive with its surface vessels against the convoys. The pocket battleship Admiral Scheer, on the 5th of November 1940, attacked a convoy and sank five ships and damaged a number of others. On the 25th of December 1940, the cruiser Admiral Hipper attacked a convoy but was driven off. A couple of months later, the Admiral Hipper attacked a convoy that sank seven ships. Between January and March 1941, the Scharnhorst and the Gnusso undertook Operation Berlin, which sank or captured 22 Allied merchant ships. Due to the success of Operation Berlin, the Germans launched Operation Rheinbung with the battleship Bismarck and the heavy cruiser Prince Eugene. The goal was to stop Allied shipping from reaching Britain. The British, aware of the threat of these German ships, gathered ships at Scapa Flow in the north of Scotland. This included the battleships King George V and Prince of Wales, as well as the battlecruiser Hood and the aircraft carrier Victorious. The British also had available the battlecruiser Renown and the aircraft carrier Ark Royal at Gibraltar. On the 23rd of May, the British cruiser Suffolk sighted the German ships off the coast of Greenland. On the 24th of May, in what is called the Battle of Denmark Strait, the British ships Hood and Prince of Wales engaged the Bismarck and Prince Eugene. The Bismarck was able to sink the Hood, which was a great loss for the British Navy. The Prince of Wales continued to fight but was forced to withdraw after suffering damage. But the Prince of Wales was not the only ship damaged, the Bismarck being hit numerous times. This would cause the Bismarck to leak a significant amount of oil, which would only help the British track it down. The Norfolk the Suffolk and the Prince of Wales began to shadow the Bismarck as it fled in its damaged state, while the Prince Eugene went off to continue raiding. That night, planes from the Victorious attacked the Bismarck, but were unable to do sufficient damage. Eventually, the Bismarck lost its pursuers, and it looked like, perhaps, it might escape and returned to the safety of France. However, on the morning of the 26th of May, British aircraft spotted the Bismarck. Swordfish from the Ark Royal took off to attack the Bismarck with their torpedoes. Unfortunately, they accidentally attacked the British cruiser, the Sheffield. Once the correct ship was identified, the Ark Royal sent a force of 15 swordfish to attack the Bismarck. This resulted in some critical damage that doomed the German ship. The battleships Rodney and King George V moved in the next day with guns blazing. The heavy cruiser Dorsetshire attacked with torpedoes, but still the Bismarck would not sink despite being unsteerable and undefendable. Ultimately, the Germans set scuttling charges and the mighty warship finally sank below the waves. Survivors were picked up by the British, with a few being rescued by some U-boats that arrived. The Prince Eugene was more fortunate and was able to make it back to the French port 
of Brest. Of course, with the sinking of the Bismarck, the Battle of the Atlantic was not yet over. The U-boats were still out there, and merchant ships were still being sunk. The only hope for much-needed supplies to reach Britain was for escort ships to provide protection. Between March and May of 1941, the Allies finally had the ships to protect the convoys. This came especially from two sources. One were the ex-American destroyers that have already been mentioned, which were finally ready for service. The other were the flower-class corvettes, especially those of the Royal Canadian Navy. As a Canadian, I have to take a moment to comment on this. At the beginning of the war, the RCN was very small, with only six ocean-going vessels. By the end of the war, Canada had one of the largest navies in the world, with 434 commissioned vessels. The RCN safely escorted more than 25,000 merchant vessels, delivering 165 million tons of much-needed supplies to Europe. The RCN had the responsibility for escorting ships in the Northwest Atlantic, and they sank 30 U-boats. Yay, Canada! This is where we're going to end this look at the Battle of the Atlantic, although it is far from over. But if you're interested in this particular campaign, I recommend the, the Tom Hanks movie Greyhound. It is from a later part in the war when the U.S. entered the conflict, and it's based on a fictional novel. But it's a great movie, and it will give you some sense of what it was like for the escorts and convoys crossing the Atlantic. If you want the German perspective, I also recommend the excellent movie Das Boot. It's a classic and very much worth watching. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please visit me at stephenjbedard.com slash secondworldwar. While I do this podcast because of my love for history, I will admit that there are some costs. There are ways for you to help financially so that I can continue this and my other podcasts. Consider supporting me on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash hopesreason. Even $2 a month, less than a cup of coffee, will help keep this podcast going. If you don't want to do something monthly, a one-time donation is more than welcome. Just go to my website, stephenjbedard.com slash secondworldwar, and look for the donate button. Thank you for your support. Please find me on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you, and God bless.